Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ba, 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 test, test. Wow. Jesus, gosh. I can't believe Sophie just said that about the entire nation of Paraguay. Wow. Strange. Wow. Strange. Is it so? I feel like I say that like once a week. People are going to be angry when they hear this episode. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it just like, first of all, Montevideo's in Uruguay. I, I know, <laughs> but, right? Like immediately, obvious yeah. problem. But second of all, I just don't, I've never heard that particular stereotype. And no, I'm no. shocked and appalled. It's incredible. Uh, honestly, mean, impressed like with I the creativity. Said, I say but this horrified. every week. How are you not wow. picking up on it? Wow. Just, anyway, this is Behind wow. the Bastards, Chief Bastard being our producer, Sophie Lichterman. And her. If you didn't know I don't that actually, by now, I, I don't know enough about Paraguay to fill this joke out anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had, to, I had to dig into Uruguay to yeah, get something yeah, out of it. That's how little known Paraguay is to the staff of this podcast. Yeah, I know it's one of the Guays. Yeah, yeah there's a second Guay. Let's lean on that one. I feel like it's a landlocked Guay. I feel like all the Guays are landlocked, right? I, Uruguay, I feel like, isn't landlocked. Is that okay? No, I think Uruguay is pretty landlocked. Oh, well. There's no way to answer this question with, for example, the devices we're all using to record this podcast. I did Google what are major stereotypes people have about (laughs) Paraguay and to what extent are they true? And the first answer is there. The short answer there really isn't anything special in quotes about it. Wow. (laughs) Wow. There is little known. So. I think they really like, they really like Lady Gaga. Oh, I wow. Think, yeah, you can't get him shutting up about Lady yeah, Gaga. Yeah, I think that's true. A bunch of I don't know. monsters? Did she call them monsters? Something like that? Her yeah. Fans? Yeah. Right? I've forgotten most of the things about Lady Gaga. Um, yeah. Why? What'd she do? I, do? I don't know. Nothing. I just don't remember. Like, so, so much has happened since Lady Gaga was in the news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. What do you remember about 
uh, Aston Kutcher. Very little. Um, I remember that his little. name's not Aston. <laughs> wait, his name's a- Ashton. <laughs> Ashton. See, that's how that's how little I remember I his name. That's wow. I told you I don't remember much about the Here's man. Here's my one interaction but, with him. I was at a coffee shop. He was ahead whoa. of me in line. He forgot whoa. his wallet and went back to his car to pay for his $2 coffee instead of being an asshole celebrity that was like, well, I'm Ashton Kutcher, so I'm just going to take this. Dude, and- I would have offered to pay for it. And then when uh, I got up there, I'd be like, psych, you just got punked. And then I would have waited for him to see if I was joking or not. And then I would just I stay wasn't caffeinated enough to be clever, so... Oh, I, clever! That's very generous for this bit I'm doing. <laughs> um, anyways, I, this I, I podcast is not about Aston or Ashton Kutcher. This is uh, mm-hmm. no. This is a podcast no, where I don't know. A, a I know Sopranos very, podcast. Oh, okay, <laughs> Sopranos podcast. <laughs> Sorry, where we talk about I don't know Sopranos character Book of Beppo. That's um, right, man. No. <laughs> You got to learn names, man. You got to know one of them's name is Soprano. It is to- Tony, right? Tony. Yeah. You yeah. Got I it. got it. I got All it. Right. Remember um, that. I remember that. And I remember a lot about Napoleon the third, oh, uh, yes. who we are, who we are talking about. Now, when we left off with our hero, he has just <laughs> tried to take over France, failed, shot a man in the face for no reason, and yeah. then repeatedly attempted to commit suicide as he was taken <laughs> to jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So not a great coup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the worst. But mm-hmm. uh I respect the attempt. Mm-hmm. I always respect a good coup attempt. I always respect a good a coup attempt, right? Yeah. Um this is I have I think, you know, it's debatable. Is this a worse coup attempt than Hitler's? You know? Hitler's mm. ended with him and all of his men getting machine gunned in the street. Right. Uh, and then he did try to kill himself. But there's something about the the impotence of shooting an unarmed man in the face for no reason in whatsoever. Yeah, in the mouth. <laughs> like, come on, man. <laughs> Yeah. He was just I mean, standing there. It's a weird panic button. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Where you're just yeah. like, I'm panicking. Oh, where's the nearest yeah. mouth? Where's the nearest mouth I can put a <laughs> fucking musket ball in? Good Lord. Yeah, that's what so, you do when you panic. Some people, gets, you know, some people play better when they're panicking. Not him. Not him. No, he, he did not. He did not. Uh rise to the moment so no he speak. didn't no he, this the opposite the, of michael jordan's flu game this was yeah. if michael jordan had the flu during game four of the nba finals and then shot scotty pippen in the mouth <laughs> why did you say game yeah. four i because I, I forget which game was the flu game i mean it might have been a game two and uh was it game five when he had the flu i believe it was game six Game so so he won an NBA final with the flu. That's crazy. Let's find wow. out. Let's fact check that Michael stuff. Jordan. Pretty amazing basketball yeah. player. A lot of people Game call five. him the We're Napoleon the Third of, of basketball. The nineteen ninety seven NBA Finals against the Jazz. Oh God, I hate the Jazz. Anyways, so, so Napoleon. <laughs> so the reaction in the media the, and the reaction in general from like the government to coup two was very different from coup number one. One newspaper proposed that Napoleon III might have dementia. The government of Louis Philippe, uh, who's the king, described <laughs> yeah. the attack as a vain and vicious attempt to overthrow the government during which an unarmed soldier had nearly been murdered, which was accurate. Um, yep. uh, so this is, you know, the first time Louis Philippe kind of just wants to usher him out. Like they have a court case, but he doesn't want him in the country. He doesn't really want to like 
punish it too harshly. To his, I don't know, very mild credit, Louis Philippe reacts more stringently to this one. But mm. it, 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 and, and it's interesting because his Louis, Louis Napoleon's dad, uh, Louis Bonaparte, <laughs> has mostly been very much against all the things his son has tried to do and, and was sure. against this coup attempt. But the invective against his son in like the public media and from the French government forces Louis Bonaparte to actually finally stand up in his son's defense. Now, he, well, okay, okay. In my son's defense, yeah, <laughs> he's really bad at everything and he didn't succeed. And so what do you, you know, it was win-win. Yeah. He had fun. We had fun. Everyone had fun. It's interesting. That's actually not that far from what he does. So obviously <laughs> being the guy that he is and being a principled man, he can't defend his son's attempt to overthrow the government, nor he can he offend, like defend like shooting a man in the face. His yeah. kid, so instead of doing that, he writes a letter to be published in the Italian press, which complains that his son is, quote, the victim of an infamous conspiracy, seduced by flatterers, false friends, and perhaps from from insidious advice. Dude, so he's basically saying like fake friends. He was he was like out. it's like a cult thing, right? Like mm-hmm. I, he got he got wrapped up in by some bad people, but he's not a bad kid. He just got given some bad advice, you know. Mm-hmm. That is not completely wrong because that's part of what happened, right? Louis mm-hmm. Napoleon is not a very smart guy and he's very vulnerable to the people around him if they're nice to him. This sure. is going to continue to be a factor in his life through his entire <laughs> reign and mm-hmm. I think some of this is that actually Louis Bonaparte kind of understands his son. Um, But he also, he's a little blinded too, because he can't believe that his son was really a driving force behind the attempt, writing that, Mm -hmm. quote, it is quite impossible that a man surely not lacking the financial means and common sense should have, with his eyes wide open, willingly thrown himself over such a political precipice. Basically like, look, if if he did, if he was a driving factor behind this, he would have had to be an idiot. And I know he's not an idiot. Right, uh, yeah. Yuri, you are his dad. I can't yeah, blame you yeah. for... He's for, a special <laughs> little boy. We all yeah. get that. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> Louis Napoleon goes to court. Uh, this time, he's actually in country for it, and it does not go well for him, law-wise. Again, he's gotten kind of like... He got off the hook, basically, last time. Um, but... Yeah, he got $200,000. <laughs> yeah, and acquitted. He's not going to get acquitted this time, but it actually kind of goes better for him, because oh. Louis Napoleon is dumb in a lot of ways, but he understands some things about politics and the new mass media that no mm. one has figured out yet. Um, and as Hitler is going to learn about 80 years later, if you're on trial for trying to overthrow the government, you can do pretty well by firing off a populist rant that makes the case for your reign. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, here's, here's the speech that he gives, or uh, an excerpt from the speech that he gives in court. For the first time in my life, I have been permitted to speak in France and to speak freely before the French people. In spite of the guards on either side of me, in spite of all the accusations I have just heard, I find myself here within the walls of the Senate that I had first visited as a child with Napoleon. In your midst, you whom I know, gentlemen, I do not believe that I have to justify myself, nor that you could be my judges. A solemn occasion is offered me here to explain to my fellow citizens my conduct, my intentions, my projects, what I think and what I desire. The nation has never revoked the grand act of sovereignty, the one that had established Napoleon Bonaparte's kingdom. And as the emperor himself said, everything done without adhering to it is illegal, and that includes this trial. And two, do not think for a moment that I might have wanted to attempt any imperial restoration in France without the backing of the people of this country through a plebiscite. As for my undertaking at Boulogne, I had no other accomplices. I alone am responsible. I represent before you a principle, a cause and a defeat. One principle, the sovereignty of the people, the cause, that of our empire, and a defeat, Waterloo. So he's saying like, 
you know, the the government that my uncle established is still legitimate. This court has no right to hold mm-hmm. me for anything. But also, I never wanted to become the emperor without a plebiscite. I was only trying to do what I think the people wanted me to do. Right. right? I was just going to do a coup. Yeah. And then see if people were cool with that. You know, that's why it's called a coup. Are you and guys it's not cool really a cool because a coup because like Napoleon's constitution is right. still valid, clearly. Right. Yeah. Is it a coup if you guys are the ones who originally did the coup? Exactly. Back when you did the Bourbon Restoration. So who coup? Who coup? <laughs> who yeah. coup's line is it anyway? Coup's, you know coup's, I mean? coup's line is it any? It, so coup. dumb. Whatever. So he, this goes really well for him actually, because again, Louis Philippe's a terrible king, right? We're laughing yeah. at Louis Napoleon, but Louis Philippe is not a good king, and his monarchy yeah. is kind of a shit show. People are very unhappy, and they hear this guy. He's hearkening back to this defeat which still wounds the French soul Waterloo and the victories mm-hmm. of Napoleon before it. And he's saying like, look, we never stopped being those guys who could win. We just let guys like this tell us mm-hmm. that we weren't that anymore. And if we get them, we can make France great again, right? That's We're that, I mean, make that, France that, great again. Yeah, that's, that, that's what he's saying. And it works really well. And the fact that this speech goes so well for Louis Napoleon does not at all mitigate the king's desire to see him locked the fuck away, right? Louis Philippe sure. decides, I got to keep this dude in a fucking cage. Yeah. And on October 6th, Louis Napoleon is sentenced to life in prison, which is honestly not an entirely unfair sentence for shooting an unarmed man in the face for absolutely no reason. Yeah, yeah. But it, just beyond the even attempted coup part, yeah, just, just doing shooting that. a guy in the face. Look, I'm not a carceral guy, but of no. the things you might lock someone up for, randomly shooting a man in the face is not a bad one right yeah i mean we're talking about like you know the 1840s france yeah chances are you're locking people away for far less yes exactly exactly um so broadly speaking and again his his prison this is not a hard prison right he is not it locked away in the fucking bastille this isn't some like les miserables shit where he's yeah. breaking rocks or whatever while javert <laughs> sings at him um he's 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 got like a suite of rooms in what is effectively a castle um he lives mm-hmm. he has all of the books that he wants he gets regularly visited he gets invited to dinner by the the warden um he is a celebrity prisoner he lives he's better than a lot of deals. people do today he's doing interviews he is in fact writing a book yes um <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and p- part of the, you know, obviously he shot a man in the face and tried to overthrow the government. France has killed people for less. They were still uh, oh. guillotining dudes. Oh, yeah. Um, that would not have been out of the, you could, again, as the leader of the country, you can easily make a case for doing that. Sure. But Louis Napoleon or Lu- uh, Louis Philippe, sorry, God, there's too many fucking Louises in this mm-hmm. fucking series. <laughs> King Louis Philippe can't do that because there's unrest building all throughout the country. And right around the time that Louis Napoleon is on trial, he has finally agreed and carried out this massive logistical hurdle to bring the corpse of Napoleon Bonaparte back to France a decade after his death. So while all this is going on, the French government and military are preparing for this massive ceremony where Napoleon's corpse is being carried through the country and put up. Oh, in this a, is an actual thing? Like, yes. Uh, th- they're actually going to exhume his corpse? Yeah, yeah. They're going to to take it and bury it in a crypt. Yeah, in, in France, back on oh, his home soil. Hell yeah, dude. Well, not his home soil because he was Corsican, but whatever. Right. Um, yeah, so this is, it's an, it's a dangerous time. You don't want to be executing his nephew while yeah. people, everyone is like weeping as his coffin is taken through the streets, right? Because yeah. people still love Napoleon. Mm-hmm. The crowds to see Napoleon's casket numbered half a million men, many of them veterans. So again, this is particularly a crowd of people you don't want to piss off. 
Like there's half a million men in the street who have been under musket fire together. They stood for hours to watch his, um, you know, the, whatever, the thing with the, the coffin pass, even though it was so half a million people standing for like a lot of them, eight to 12 hours to watch this procession when it is negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit outside. That's how much people love Napoleon. They really like this guy. They really like Napoleon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I Um, mean, it says also a lot about uh, how much, you know, the the bourbons are fucking up all the time, you know, uh, because they you know, didn't Louis, like him at Louis the end. Philippe is a... Um, he's a, he's uh, the Duke d'Orléans. Yeah, he's an Orléans, Orléans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, he is part of that family. He was just like the uh, cousin. They're all related. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're all, all related. related. Except but, for like the Bonaparte. Well, now the Bonaparte's too a little bit. Well, yeah. not the Bonaparte. Yeah, but it, it just shows how much they fucked up in that. Like, at the end of, like, Napoleon's reign, everyone's like, can we get this guy out? Because he keeps trying to do invasions and stuff. And we just kind of are tired of it. And uh, at this point, everyone's like, hey, remember when shit was cool? Yeah. Back when, like, Napoleon was around? We were just kicking those fucking Austrians' asses. Yeah, just, like, kicking everyone's ass. Just like, oh, dude, shit was so sick. Yeah. And also, there was order. And people Mm -hmm. love remembering order. God, people do love order. Um, Mm. As uh, noted by the documentary, whichever Star Wars movie was the most recent one. Law Um, and order. That's right. (laughs) Actually, a a, a Star Wars-themed law and order could be a pretty fucking fun (laughs) show. You could do a lot with that premise. You know what's going to (laughs) happen. Disney Plus is nothing but You could make that work. You could make that work very well. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Watch it. Look, we're going to have to skip ahead a bit through the next piece of history because I have to tell you, this guy does so much in his fucking life. He's involved in so much shit. Uh, Anyway, to summarize the next part of his story, what happens after he gets thrown in prison, I'm going to turn to yet another book, The Last Emperor of Mexico by Edward Shawcross. Mm -hmm. Quote, Undeterred, six years later, while the prison was undergoing construction, Louis Napoleon, dressed in the clothes of a workman, picked up a wooden plank, put it over his shoulder, and walked out the front gate before (laughs) fleeing to London. (laughs) (laughs) It was so easy to break out of prisons. He he didn't even have to get like a Rita Hayworth poster and like a tiny little pickaxe. (laughs) Sacre bleu! He walked he's, out! Yeah, he's just like, uh, excuse me, mm-hmm. I'm uh, just going to uh, move this uh, wooden plank. <laughs> this was before the invention of the door, so people really had no way to keep someone yeah. in something. All yeah. prisons had worked on the honor system previously. Right, exactly. <laughs> it was like, hey, hey, where are you going? He's like, oh no, he's a workman. He's mm-hmm. the most famous he's workman He's fine, he has wood on his shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> it can't be him. He would never hold wood. The emperor would never hold wood. He is <laughs> Not Bin Shapiro <laughs> <laughs> at the Home Depot. Yeah, he's just uh, holding a piece of wood in a Home Depot bag. It is funny. Like, Excuse that me. I'm uh, 150 years apart when <laughs> the son of or the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte and rich guy Ben Shapiro need to feel like a pretend to be a common man. They both pick the same tactic. I'm gonna really get some is. wood, hold it up for my shelter. It's the number one thing that rich people think mm-hmm. work uh, like working class people do. Always it's like, what, just wood what, everywhere. What do the poor do again? I think they just like hold wood and they go, mm-hmm. ugh. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. That's what they do. Just hold pieces of wood. Hold pieces of uh, wood and say, oh, well, my brow has beads of water Such on sweat it. upon it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to continue that quote. 
Yes. And there it would have ended had it not been for the pro providential moment Louis Napoleon had been waiting for, the European revolutions of 1848. After the abdication of the French king, a republic was hastily proclaimed and elections announced. Despite no experience of democratic politics or a political party to support him, Louis Napoleon grandiosely told a cousin, I'm going to Paris. A republic has been proclaimed. I must be its master. His cousin <laughs> responded, you are dreaming as usual. And yet, this is the wild thing. He's completely right. He yep. wins this election in a fucking landslide. Um, obviously, the fact that he's a Napoleon is most of what a lot of the voters need to hear. Yes. Um, and also that he had been very visibly in opposition to the hated king who had just been overthrown. Mm -hmm. um, but he's also, he's he is particularly unpopular with the people who had been the political elite and the only people who were able to vote previously to the proclamation of the Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, um, who is a political smart guy thinker, um, mm -hmm. he, was, he was there, uh, he was there uh, fucking, um, I don't know, what's a terrible political columnist right now? Um, are you talking, uh, Brett Stevens. Uh, Bill, are you talking Bill about Crystal. Barry he's there, Wise? Bill Crystal. <laughs> yeah, he's there, Barry Wise. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the he's not. He's not at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> People are going to be so angry at me. All the Tocqueville yeah, scholars yeah. in the audience. But he does not like Louis Napoleon. He compares him to a dwarf who, quote, on the summit of a great wave, is able to scale a high cliff which a giant placed on dry ground would not be able to climb. Which is actually yeah. a really accurate summary of what's happened, right? It's yeah. not his own personal character, because he has not accomplished a single thing in his life other than Nothing. shooting that guy in the face. But yeah. there's this wave, and he expertly, the thing that he actually is good at is, number one, he's, he does have this degree of understanding of the French populace, and yeah. he knows where to place himself to take advantage of this wave. Um, I guess my only disagreement with de Tocqueville there is that, like, that is actually a skill. It's a really dangerous skill, but it is a skill. Yeah. Most people it's a high political IQ that. thing you know it's yeah. like we all want to it's the same type of you know like <laughs> critique that people have of Trump where you're just like he's stupid and he's and it's like yeah nah, he's, man. <laughs> he's an idiot like yeah. he's dumb in a thousand ways but he is very good at manipulating people and he has a high political IQ you would hope that like the thing we would get out of Trump and also guys like Dr. Oz and guys mm -hmm. like what's the other fucking expert Ben Carson is that like yeah. intelligence isn't a thing People yes. are good at things and they are bad at things, but yes. nobody is smart, right? Yeah. Like that's not the way brains work. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Like I'm really good at geography, mm -hmm. but I'm an idiot. So me being good at geography doesn't make me a smart guy. It just means mm -hmm. I'm good at one thing. No. You know? And Elon Musk being a competent engineer in some specific things clearly does not make him smart in other ways. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Ex very clearly. Like knowing why a blue check mark is a thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's good. Um, so I'm going to continue that quote. Yes. Writer and politician Victor Hugo penned a series of vitriolic attacks on Louis Napoleon, one titled Napoleon Le Petit, exhorting the French to look at this hog wallowing in his own slime on a lion's skin. Even Adolphe Thiers, leader of the conservative politicians in France who supported Louis Napoleon, thought him an idiot who could be easily controlled. Certainly, Louis Napoleon did not seem to have his uncle's drive, except when it came to women. Indeed, his mistress at this time, and financial backer, was a a notorious English courtesan and failed actress, a combination too much even for French politics. To the relief of many, the Constitution of the Republic limited the presidency to one four-year term. Louis Napoleon, however, was not going to allow a constitution he had sworn to uphold to get in the way of destiny. 
Mm-hmm. So obviously, when he comes to power here, 1848, this is a year of massive left-wing revolutions, a lot of which fall just kind of a little short of actually, yeah. you know, it's it's this kind of failed revolution year in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Not everywhere, but in a lot of ways. And prior to Napoleon III, most people who'd supported the return to monarchy anywhere were staunchly anti-democratic, right? There was a wide understanding that democratic governments inevitably led to radical left-wing policies that would undermine and threaten elites. Napoleon III's great innovation And the thing that actually is kind of genius from him is that he saw that this was bullshit, right? The masses would be perfectly happy endorsing hereditary authoritarian rule if you sold it to them the right way. And in fact, that would make your rule more stable. Mm -hmm. More than this, he saw that royalist coups and crackdowns against democratic or democratic policies were fundamentally doomed. But if you could put a monarch on the throne through democratic acclaim, that would act to legitimate the regime using the ballot box. This is exactly what Napoleon did, holding two plebiscites in which he got voters to first back a coup against the republic and then declare him emperor. He won both with at least one of them was more than 90% of the electorate, right? Yeah. And and this is... This is the thing, every dictator who follows after him, Napoleon is kind of the start of the wave of like, now, if you're a dictator, you don't just say, I'm the dictator and I'm in charge. You say, I'm the president or, you know, the premier or whatever, and I've been elected and we do an election every couple of years and I get 98% of the vote, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now it's like, you always have the guise of, you know, uh, I am a democratically Mm -hmm. elected uh, president or prime minister or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. You just make it up. You, you, the, the, the elections can be fake as long as it looks like you're democratic and you, you do lip service. That's all that matters. Yeah. And it's, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. This write-up by History Today provides more context as to why he was able to, to get so much, get so far with the electorate. He was a fresh figure on the scene, which was a great advantage. He had total faith in his destiny, which was another, and he could parade as a person above party politics. Karl Marx sourly remarked because Louis Napoleon that because Louis Napoleon was nothing, he could appear to be everything. His opponents attempted ridicule, caricaturing him riding a goose he was trying to transform into an imperial eagle, merely rebounded to his advantage by reminding people of his Napoleonic connection. He wooed the electorate with promises to restore France's lost glory and assurances of prosperity, advancement, and a happy future for every group and social class in the country. As one of his biographers commented, he came down impartially on all sides. Yeah. He was everything to everybody. You you could kind of just put your own politics into him. And this is, you know, that, that Marx quote, history comes once as first as a tragedy and second as a farce. Yeah. That he writes that about Louis Napoleon, right? Uh Napoleon Bonaparte is the tragedy because millions die. And Louis Napoleon is the farce. Right. Because he's literally a parody. He's literally a parody of his uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like we all, the, uh, our version, our vision of like Napoleon that we have now is actually just Louis Napoleon. Uh, yeah. It's like, he's very, very tiny, weird mustache, like uh, bad goatee, uh, looks like a clown. That's that's the parody of his uncle. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fucking cool. And you know what's a parody of bad products what <laughs> the good products that support our podcast Ooh, that's oh right yeah. i love, love it products. love that love that for us um i'm just gonna say it hot as shit robert i said yep. the entire team the columbus eat
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <sighs> Boy, howdy. I tell you what, we're back, and I... I have never, I have never, never once. Yeah. So we're talking about Napoleon III and how he how he uh, got himself into the good books of the French electorate and mm. won election and then became the emperor. Um, and is the, the strategy he makes of like being like, I'm going to restore our lost glory. Everything is going to get better for everybody. It works really well with like particularly the peasants, the country folks, who in yeah. fact, a big way in which they show there when kind of like these plebiscites are going on, one of the ways in which Napoleon's strongest supporters show they love him is by marching around the streets, shooting guns in the air and getting wasted. Um, oh yeah, That's, which 
That sounds right. That this sounds feels, about right. Yeah, yeah that sounds this, about right. <laughs> that's how we celebrate everything. That, yeah. You know, if that's the modern way of celebrating, it was created by Louis Napoleon. Yeah, I uh, I get it. I get why that would be the way that would happen. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you've ever seen, uh, you know, any team from Philadelphia win a championship in sports of some sort, you'll understand that this is how we celebrate. They also yeah. eat doo-doo off the street, but. Yeah, that's probably diff. going on here, too. Um, yeah. A lot of vets who had fought with his uncle put on their uniforms and would march around. Yeah. Um, they are, funnily enough, as they like march to the polls, they're shouting shit like death to the rich and aristos and usurers to the guillotine, which, yeah. again, he is literally the nephew of the emperor. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he, he does very well. Yeah. Um, Quote, professional politicians were shocked, but the new president and most of France had had quite enough of them. He went on to rid himself of the party of order and destroy the Second Republic with the support of a handful of Bonapartists in the National Assembly. Steering his men into key positions in the army and the administration, he took advantage of an economic slowdown uh, downturn in 1851 to present himself as the strongman who would save France from socialism and collapse. In December, he carried out a successful coup, put down his opponents by force, and sent the assembly packing. Um... And yeah, it's interesting to me. I don't think this history is widely known outside of France, certainly not outside of Europe, but it's it's fucking fascinating to me that France has two democratic governments in a row ended by members of the same family. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. it's like if Hitler had come along in the 1970s, like another one and ended German, <laughs> German democracy again, like yeah. just another Hitler. Everybody's like, yeah, let's give him another shot. <laughs> Listen, Greg Hitler is different mm -hmm. than his uncle Adolf, okay? We can trust Greg. Greg, a different kind of Hitler. A different kind of Hitler for a modern era. A modern JK. Hitler for modern Germany. <laughs> Shows him like arm in arm with a rabbi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Things are cool now between Things the Hitlers cool. and the Jews. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's going to be different this time. Mm hmm. Yeah. And he did what? God damn it, he invaded <laughs> Poland again. He did, he did it again, that son of a bitch. Oh, I should have known. Mm -hmm. Fool me once. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of insane that, uh, like, how quickly he went from, like, being president, you know, Louis Napoleon, to just immediately being going like, what, what are we doing here? We all know I'm going to be emperor. And then, boom, Napoleon III, just like that. You know? Yeah, it's uh, Good it's cool. So on December second, eighteen fifty-two, Louis Napoleon became Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte the Third. And technically, it was wrong every time before this when I called him Napoleon the Third. But it's mm. fine. He's Napoleon the Third. Edward Shawcross notes that he quote aimed to plow a middle way between liberalism and conservatism, much like Bill Clinton. In this, he built the <laughs> example of the recently overthrown King Louis Philippe, lover of the centrist juste milieu. But Napoleon the Third was willing to go further and based his regime on direct democracy, as expressed through universal male suffrage, as one of his aphorisms supposedly went, do not fear the people. They are more conservative than you. <laughs> and this oh. is, this is why I want to talk about this guy because mm -hmm. he is kind of not, not kind of, he absolutely is the model of all future authoritarian populists in democratic yeah. societies. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's, I, I find him fascinating for that reason. It's weird because his instincts were dead on and remain true to this day. Yes. He you absolutely know. was not wrong about any of this stuff in terms of right. like how to get elected and shit. 
I mean, he's a clown and he does all this like stupid shit. He's shooting the guy in the mouth. He's, you know, just a couple failed coups. So you're kind of just like, this is like what the ultimate fail son, right? Yep. Or fail nephew. Um, but uh, yeah, no, his instincts were 100% right on when it came to reestablishing the <laughs> French Empire. Yeah, uh, it works very well. So the early days, as we said, the early days of his domestic policies are a staggering success. The French economy recovers from its long slump. The nation begins to industrialize rapidly. And just as critically, Louis Napoleon turns France into a major player on the European stage again, right? Mm -hmm. The the, the couple of decades after Napoleon, France is a bit of a pariah state, right? Kind of the same way the Germans were, where everyone's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if we can trust these guys given, you know, history. history everything that happens repeatedly um which is again not an unreasonable thing to think uh but this this is where that all turns around this is he brings france back into kind of the standing of a responsible nation state right you can call that bullshit or not but like that that's he he effectively changes the way people think about france in a big way by changing the way france acts as a power um and the major way he does this the first kind of big thing he does to turn around you know france's political position in europe is to ally with great britain for the crimean war in 1853 this is right after he so this is basically one of the first things he does is l'empereur Mm-hmm. Now, the Crimean War is often considered the first modern military conflict, and it is one of the two wars, the other being the 1870 war uh, between Prussia and France that we'll talk mm-hmm. about at the end of these episodes, that sets up the preconditions for World War One. And the, the gist of this war is that Russia and Turkey, they've been fighting for each other for centuries, right? Like, you got your Ottoman Empire, and they keep trying to push into Europe, and, and they got the Balkans, and the Russians are seen by a lot of Europe for a decent chunk of time. The Russians, are, Russia is seen as like the great barrier to the Ottomans, right, right, to the Muslim hordes. Um, And these periodic military conflicts are ever complicated by the political situation over in the Holy Land, which at the time is under Ottoman control, but the English are involved in, like, mediating things. And you've got, it's not, you know, today we think about, like, religious conflicts in the Holy Land, and it's like, oh, well, you got your your Muslims and Jews and Christians and whatnot. Back in that day, one of the big conflicts is between Greek Orthodox and Catholic monks who who are mm. rioting. There are, there are times where they'll kill each other. There will be like riots over these like holy spaces where people are beating each other to death. Um, it fucking rules. It's super funny. Um, anyway, the czars see themselves as protectors of orthodoxy. Uh, and since the Ottomans are in charge of the Balkans at this period, remember that, so the Ottoman Empire is still ruling what we would call a decent chunk of Eastern Europe today. Yeah. Um, there are about 12 million Orthodox Christians living under Ottoman rule. And Russia wants to take that area away from the Muslims and also add it to Russia. Um, And while, you know, you might expect all of the other Christian nations to back them, but everybody's scared of Russia. They're considered a dangerous power. And so for the most part, like, while they'll pay lip service to like, oh yeah, we got to free those Christians from the evil Muslims. Most of the other states in this period are like, yeah, we don't want Russia to have the whole Balkans. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's not a good yeah. idea. Um, yeah, they're they're also scary. Yeah, they're also very scary. Yeah, both of these people are uh, hordes people. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to deal with hordes. We of just evil. don't like hordes that much anymore. Yeah, just yeah. like could you thin out numbers a little less hordes, more less, just couple of fewer of hordes. 
So for a lot of the 1800s, the British try to keep some sort of balance. They're often brought in as kind of the mediators here. Um, do and they, you know, they've got again another part of this is that like the British have massive financial interests inside the Ottoman Empire, so they're like because mm. the Ottomans are kind of falling apart in this period, right? They're being called yeah. the sick man of Europe, and so the 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 Russians are like, well, we actually we could we could take them right now, you know, we might be able to actually fucking push them out of here and. The British are like, well, but that's not, that's actually not going to work out great for us. We have a lot of yeah. it. It works out really. We don't want to control, we don't want to take over the Ottoman Empire. That sounds like a giant pain in the ass. Yeah. That's just going to be expensive. But right now, their government will basically do whatever the fuck we say. Um, and so we can make a shitload of money, you know, yeah. not doing anything. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's cool. Um, so there, you know, this goes on for years for most of the 1800s, in fact, um, and kind of massive conflicts are just barely avoided here and there. But then in July of 1853, the czar invades Moldova and Wallachia, uh, which is like modern day Romania. Mm. Um, now Louis Napoleon had no desire to start off his reign with another land war in Europe. He'd campaigned on the premise that quote, the empire stands for peace, but the connections he'd built with the English prior to his rise for power. Remember that's where he's hanging out the whole time as he's like right. in, in between coups means that he can't just sit back if they choose to get involved this is further complicated by the fact that a lot of french people hated the english um so they didn't really want to be on their side but they hated the russians too which right. i think helped a little bit yeah. um ultimately lewis tells the french assembly that he's sending his army some three hundred thousand men East to help England defend the Sultan against Russian aggression. And this war effectively brings France back to the world stage as a major player. And it is the, this is why, if you've ever wondered, given all of the centuries they were fighting each other, well, why do France and England wind up on the same side in World War One and Two? Well, it starts here, right? This is kind of mm. the first time where they wind up wrapped together um, in a major war. Yeah. And it's, um yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> special relationship now yeah you know? they, they, this is the start of that and it this is often like in kind of the high level summaries of like what happens in the crimean war you'll hear it described as like well this is the first modern war you know the the french and the british had had better rail lines and better transit and like the russians were so just like fuck ups and stuff but also the french and and British militaries are also disasters in this war. This mm. this war is a terrible, terrible war for everybody involved. Um, and it's a shit show because the military that France has built since Napoleon isn't really good at fighting in conventional wars. They've become a colonial policing force built to like lock down Algeria and West Africa. And mm -hmm. Lewis is calling upon them to like fight these human wave attacks. The logistical hurdles are made worse by the fact that Lewis picks his cousin, Jerome Bonaparte, as the divisional general who's running the, the military. Now, Jerome gets the job because his cousin, uh, also named Jerome, had fought God alongside Napoleon God. Bonaparte. I know, no. it's, it's so fucking stupid. Jerry's. Pick new names, you assholes! Like, oh, God, I hate you. There's Louis and there's Jerry. No. And yeah, there's only two kinds of names a person can have. Fucking yeah. call him Mitch. Have a Mitch Napoleon Bonaparte. Honestly, like, fucking Derek, hell. Derek yeah. Napoleon. Derek Bonaparte. God almighty. Fucking so, A. So Jerome gets this job because his uncle had fought with Napoleon. But the thing his uncle was famous for was abandoning Napoleon Bonaparte during the march to Russia in 1812 and, like, <laughs> fleeing <laughs> the empire. Because yeah, he hey. did, yeah. 
which is not bad. Look, not, not bad no, judgment. Yeah. Like yeah, not that's bad judgment. He's smart. Yeah. yeah. But also that might be a red flag. And sure enough, sure. the instant cousin Jerome sees gunfire, he goes home. <laughs> He, he flees back to Paris. It's in the blood. It's in the blood. <laughs> he learned the thing his dad learned about war, which is nah, nah, nah. Yeah, fuck nah, this. I don't, don't want to be anywhere near that shit. Yeah. <laughs> so this earns him the nickname Sans Plom or Gutless Bonaparte. That's what they call mm. him now. Is 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 Gutless Bonaparte. Yeah. Um, which is quite a nickname. And I'm going to quote next from the book The Shadow Emperor. It was a grim beginning for what was to prove a very grim campaign under sweltering summer temperatures as dysentery, typhus, typhoid, and a most deadly cholera epidemic ravaged the ranks. On the 15th of October, they fought and narrowly won the indecisive victory of Balaclava, where the 7th Earl, the mad general, Black Bottle Lord Cardigan, Louis Hell Napoleon's yeah. landlord during his youthful exile in London, led his historic 661-man cavalry in the charge of the Light Brigade, of which only 414 young men along with some 300 horses, survived. So the charge of the Light Brigade guy is his former landlord. <laughs> he hires his landlord? He hires his landlord. Well, the, 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 you know, he does not in charge of the British Army. Um, <laughs> this was followed by the Allied victory at Inkerman on November 5th, 1854, and then began the unanticipated 11th-month siege against the Russian Marshal, Marshal Menshikov's 50 to 70,000 men and their stoutly defended port fortress of Sebastopol. There, the French, who had failed to bring the heavy artillery for this war, were obliged to strip their navy of most of their guns to form 13 batteries of 30 and 50 pound cannon. Um, so again, he sends the, the, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, an artilleryman, sends his army to war without heavy artillery. And they uh, take it from the boats. They which have is to fine. take it from the boats. There's not like there's any water near Crimea. Yeah. No, it's very funny. Um, the, and again, they win because... This is also, look, you know, the Ukrainian military has gotten praised a lot for its stick to If you spend time talking to people who are, are there, talking to people who have been over there, it's still a bit of a shit show. It's a messy military, right? Mm. But again, as is the case here, the Russians are just so much messier, right? Yeah. That like you you can you can afford to fuck up some when the Russians are your enemy because they're going to yeah. make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> um, the czar is not going to be planning this very well. Um you so, only need to be just a little bit more just, organized yeah, than Russia. Just have your shit more together than the Russians. Yeah. But like barely. But barely. That, <laughs> that is the case of everyone who wins a war against Russia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. Um, so in the end, the Allies won, and the Crimean War was broadly good for Lewis's new regime. But much of this was due to luck and great Russian incompetence, again, rather than good decisions by the emperor. He sends 300,000 men into the Crimea and 95,000 of them die mostly from disease due to cholera outbreaks because he doesn't have anyone in his army who can manage sanitation very well. Sure. Um, so, you know, it, some people will say he's kind of traumatized by this. Um, just because like, uh, that Louis Napoleon, that Napoleon. Yeah. III yeah, is, yeah. Yeah. He feels like bad, uh, about this. Um, like that he's, cause he's the one, he was the one who gets to make the decision, right? He was the one man who sent them into war and 95,000 of them didn't come back. And that does yeah, bro, kind of, this fuck is what your up. dad has been telling you. Yeah. For this is like ever. <laughs> this is literally what your dad was warning you That's about. All he was saying it's, over and over is pretty like, bad. <laughs> war's bad. And you're going to feel bad. Yeah, you don't, you, don't do it. 
it, it and then he, he does, does it, and he's like, "Damn, dude, I didn't know it was finally... gonna feel that bad, though." Oh, and I should know his dad is is parrot passed on by this point. His dad dies while he's in prison, so he doesn't um, ever get to be like, "Oh yeah, I get what you were saying about war being bad." Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. to a real one. Yeah, but he's you know th- this is this is literally the exact thing you were told. Um, <laughs> Anyway, he finally gets it. After Crimea, Lewis reiterates his dedication to peace, and then he sends soldiers to Italy to crush an independence movement against the Pope. Um, Mm -hmm. This is basically identical to the independence movement he had fought for as a younger man and his brother had died for. Um, But now that he was king, you know, the church is kind of an important ally for him. So he, 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 he... Now, to be fair, he kind of makes up for this in 1859 when he goes to war with Austria and defeats the Habsburg Emperor Franz Joseph, who's a big old prick in battle Mm -hmm. for an idea of like Franz Joseph massive piece of shit he loses a war in 1859 that like leads to the end of uh, Austrian domination of Italy right Um, 1859 Franz Joseph loses that war against Napoleon III guess who the emperor of Austria-Hungary is when World War I starts Uh, same guy Franz Joseph same guy (laughs) what really yeah 54 years later, five years God later, same guy, damn. emperor, fuck, yeah. He is he is in charge of Austria-Hungary for for fucking ever. It Jesus. is ludicrous how long this guy is running that fucking country, that fucking train wreck of a country. Um, it's nice to yeah. have that job security, though. Yeah, Franz Joseph, like, never dies. It sucks so bad because he's terrible. He's still um, around. Yeah, he's still alive <laughs> right now. He's still running Austria. Go over there. You'll see him. Yeah. He's trying to get hungry to come back. Yeah, I saw that. There's that picture going around of that, like, one monk somewhere in Southeast Asia who looks like a skeleton because he's so old. And oh, yeah, yeah that, that. that's, that's Franz Joseph. That's Franz Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> it's just fucking Skeletor on the throne. <laughs> he's just God going, damn it. Fight Prussia. <laughs> <laughs> so Algeria gets officially conquered in 1858. Uh, and again, they've said this a couple of times, but they they basically cracked down on the, the worst of the uprisings again in 1858. And after this point, with like kind of Algeria temporarily pacified, French power begins to expand rapidly across Southeast Asia. Um, mm. During the time that Napoleon's like early to mid reign, the French military will conquer Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, creating oh, wow. what, yeah, what eventually becomes known as French Indochina. This is a nasty thing. There are a lot, tens of thousands die, and eventually millions are going to die because of this. Um, Napoleon III lets it happen. He is not a driving force behind it. The people who orchestrate this and push this are his generals and admirals. The French Navy is a big driving force with this. And the the primary thing that you you should blame Louis Napoleon for is that, again, they kind of sit down and talk nice to him, and he just agrees to let them do whatever they want. Right, Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it. Th- he doesn't resist, and he he lets this thing happen in part because like th- people said nice things about him, and he's kind of yeah. that, that's that's basically his big vulnerability. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, he loves compliments. He loves yeah. when um, you know it's like Trump with the Saudis. They let him hold the globe, you yeah. know, the, the the glowing orb, and yeah. then he's like, "All right, here, have some more." You give a man an orb and he'll have an orb for a day. You teach (laughs) a man to find his own orbs. Yeah. (laughs) 
teach Amanda Orb. <laughs> the new book by Robert Evans. <laughs> <laughs> teach Amanda Orb. Uh, mm. Funded by Peter Thiel. <laughs> Finally going to get that Palantir money for something well, appropriate. Get that Palantir. Speaking mm. of Palantir, you know mm. who sponsors this podcast? Palantir. Palantir. So go spy on somebody. You know, Palantir's yeah. new everybody's uh, spy program. Just record someone, anybody, anybody yes. who doesn't know you're recording them, and then mail that in an envelope to Peter Thiel. He'll stick yes. it up on a Dropbox somewhere. Don't worry about what happens to it. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. She's a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. Boy, howdy. I sure love recording people without their express consent. Me too. Um, it's my favorite thing to do. That's ooh. why I enjoy the services of Palantir. Mm -hmm. Palantir. Palantir. <laughs> if you touch it, you'll see Sauron's great eye. 
<laughs> it is so fucked up that a guy named a company that. I, it's insane. It's mm-hmm. insane. It's so That's on the nose. It's people talk about like I wonder what Tolkien would have felt about like the Lord of the Rings movies and stuff. Like, no, I want to know what he would have felt about that shit. That yeah, there's like, like wait, someone the literally n- built a Palantir. It's named it Palantir. Mm-hmm. That's fucking ridiculous. It's a bit on the nose. Yeah, a little bit on the nose. Over I don't know here. if that's, that's an fine. Oxford Dawn accent. Whatever. Whatever, um, dude. Oh, no, it's British. Crikey, fuck, I say oh, it. Oh, it's me, down under British. <laughs> the two accents I can do. It would be funny to do a movie on J.R.R. Tolkien, but, like, hire somebody with one of them. Like a Cockney accent to play him. Oh, it's me, J.R.R. Tolkien, yeah. Got to speak to you in Elfish, I am. Yeah, that's right. So apparently he's like he's like a looking glass, yeah. Dead brill, eh? <laughs> so it's probably fair to say anyway, whatever. They conquer mm-hmm. Asia. Uh this is going to be a problem for tens of millions of people in the future. Right. Um and it all happens at least w- without any resistance by Napoleon the Third. Back in Europe, the negotiations at the end of the Crimean War had made Napoleon III into one of the central diplomats of European power politics. Italian unification would eventually owe a great deal to his lobbying and fighting with Austria. He began to look overseas to the Americas, where Louis Napoleon was greatly concerned with the expansion of the United States. He'd liked America, and he had admired a lot of aspects of like American or technologically driven culture while he was there, but he was canny enough to see like, well, they kind of like murdered their way into control of most of the world's resources. Um, They have like a dozen Europe's worth of country that they just own now. And uh, it kind of seems like they might become the preeminent power in the world. And I should do something to stop that because Mm -hmm. I would like that to be France. Yeah. Yeah. That's supposed to be me. That's supposed to be me. So in the late 1850s, he begins courting Maximilian Habsburg, who's the brother of the Austrian emperor, Franz Joseph, um, and trying to convince him to become the emperor of Mexico. So, <laughs> first off, brilliant plan. Incredible. No notes. Yeah. No <laughs> very, notes. Very, yeah, it's funny. a beautiful plan. Hey, yeah. you know how Mexico's there? Well, <laughs> it needs an emperor. What if, yeah, you know what the solution to all of Mexico's problems are? A German-speaking a, guy. A, a, yeah, a German emperor. <laughs> yeah. I think what, it's a great idea, dude. Fucking walking there, like, around Juarez right now. What do you, you, you know, you guys got a lot of problems with cartels and, and, yeah. and not enough water, all this good stuff. What if a German was in charge? Yeah. You think that'll yeah. help? Uh, so uh, first, I want to say, hola, como estas? <laughs> estas bien? Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> yeah. So I am going to be uh, uh, how you say el jefe, right? El jefe. <laughs> and um, you people are just going to uh, you're going to be my amigos. <laughs> do you uh, comprende? It's very hard to do it. You, <laughs> have, you have guy. You have basically <laughs> gotten all of it right, though. That is, that is yeah. this guy, fucking Maximilian Habsburg. Just an out. I so one of the things that I do for fun is I will troll Edward Habsburg, who is the current heir to the Habsburg family and a right. monarchist piece of shit, um, and like a, a, some weird liaison to the Catholic Church. He's a fucking asshole. He loves mm-hmm. anime, though. Weirdly enough, anyway, yeah. I I will troll him, and I will troll him specifically about the 
fact that Maximilian von Habsburg is eventually executed by a firing squad. And every time I do, I get fucking royalists in my mentions being like, well, he was actually a great leader. And if Mexico would fall, no, he wasn't. They shot him to death. That doesn't happen to you if you're a great, great leaders do. Sometimes great leaders get assassinated by a lone guy with a gun share. We've all seen that happen. Great leaders do not get executed by the mass acclaim of the populace. Right, Right, exactly. And then completely wiped from like the general history. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, I'd um, like to think I know a little bit about Mexican history, mm-hmm. and I totally They don't forgot. celebrate this guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, they, I know about, like, the whole, like, the Porfiriato regime that happened yeah. during that time and whatnot. That I all forgot. comes out of this, right? Porfirio yeah. Diaz, I think is his name, is one Porfirio of the Diaz. generals, one of the generals who fights Maximilian. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. So the way that Napoleon III proceeds with cooking this shit up is he gets a handful of Mexican academics and politicians, most of whom are living in Europe and have been like, because Mexico, tons of civil wars, right? So you have a bunch of like diaspora guys who are like in Europe trying to like raise money and support for some kind of revolution or another. He gets a bunch of these guys back to back the idea that like, the regular Mexican people are just like clamoring for a European emperor, just like the big countries, right? Yeah, yeah, please. There is zero evidence of this. There is absolutely no evidence of this. Um, (laughs) And in fact, so... The, you like tuba music? We like tuba music. <laughs> uh, to, for an idea of like how little the Mexican people uh, wanted an emperor. So there's this, you know, uh, th- there's this like Mexico gets its its independence in like 1821 um, mm-hmm. from Spain. And the guy who like leads the independence movement is this dude, Augustin Iturbide, um, who then declares himself the emperor of Mexico. And, and do you know what the Mexican people do to Iturbide? They fucking murder him. They, kill they him. fucking they kill, kill him because they they're don't like, like having an emperor. <laughs> yeah, they're like, no, we don't. Uh, yeah. We're not with that. Yeah, which you might take as evidence that Mexicans don't want to have an emperor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems but to be uh, historically true. Napoleon the Third assumes this has to just be some like like fluke of history, uh, and he keeps <laughs> on plotting. And while he's playing power politics, Napoleon III also presides over the creation of modern Paris. The city mm. as we know it today, with its wide boulevards and iconic architecture, was largely created during Louis Napoleon's reign. And I want to quote now from a write-up in The Conversation by Samuel Raybone. Quote, Louis Napoleon inherited a cramped, crumbling, and crime-ridden capital. Paris's one million inhabitants lived cheek by jowl in a vast tangle of densely packed buildings. There was even a slum in the courtyard of the Louvre. Modernizing Paris promised more than practical benefits. I want to be a second Augustus, wrote Louis Napoleon in 1842, because Augustus made Rome a city of marble. It meant glory, so he hired a ruthlessly efficient administrator, Baron Haussmann, to knock down the old slums. The city became a building site. Charles Marvel's photographs record the squalor of the slums, the chaos of their transformation, and the spectacle of their rebirth. Thousands of men were drafted into an army of construction, battling away on this new field of honor for the glory of the nation and its increasingly power-hungry leader. Now, <sighs> the downside of using populist rhetoric to get people to endorse your dictatorial regime is that mm-hmm. you really can't afford to piss your base off too much, right? Because yeah. That's how you've justified your power. And Lewis had taken power, promising to renew France and bring hope for the working class. One commenter noted that, quote, a week's interruption of the building trade would terrify the government. Everything rode on continued mass public employment, so he's giving people jobs to do all this rebuilding, and the perception of continuous progress. 
To ensure that people believed this, Napoleon III turned to the still very new science of photography, which had only come about in the 1840s. He commissioned the best photographers of the day to document the renovation of the Louvre, the construction of new bridges and an opera house. These photos were published widely, building on a national and international image of Paris as a city being renewed. Other photographers at the time noted that the pictures Napoleon III commissioned focus on the titanic scale of his new public works projects and the clean lines of new construction. The workers erecting it, by contrast, were always tiny, quote, trapped in the labyrinth of scaffolding, as one commenter put it. The mighty inns for Napoleon stamped on every new project dwarfed the humans who made them. Raybone continues, as Napoleon III's interior minister knew, industry has its injured like war, and the rebuilding of Paris too had its glorious war wounded. In 1855, Napoleon III ordered the construction of a convalescent asylum to care for workers injured during the building works. Charles Negra visited the asylum around 1858 to photograph its buildings, patients, and staff. To get paid, Negra knew he had to tow the party line, yet the bodies he encountered had been wounded in the war for Napoleon III's self-aggrandizement, giving the lie to his image of populist benevolence. Negra's challenge was to celebrate Napoleon III's care for their suffering without revealing his culpability for it. So Negra, and this is, this hasn't happened before. Photographs mm. have not been used in this way, and you can't, you can't use paintings and shit like this, right? right. There are ways to use them for propaganda, sure, but not the way that f photographs. There's a, a, a sense that a photograph is a depiction of reality. Right. In a way that is not the case. Everyone even always understood, like, yeah, the emperor puts up these fucking statues and these reliefs, but, like, they're carvings in stone. It's not, like, right. literal. A photograph, that's reality. And right. so Napoleon is the first world leader to really comprehensively use photographs and in order to, like, craft an alternate vision of reality in his propaganda. Right. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's like yeah. as soon as we invent like a new mass media technology, we're like, how can I use this for political propaganda? Yeah. Um, Negra positioned patients and medical staff angled towards a marble bust of Napoleon III, his face clear and theirs indistinct, individually meaningless. Patients could only be shown eating, playing, and reading. Actual medical procedures were forbidden to be shown, as was evidence of permanent disability or injury. Generations of authoritarians would build on the work Napoleon did to turn his photography into part of his cult of personality. But it all started here. Ugh. It just, yeah, it, it sucks so much because it's, uh, you realize that like a lot of these people, you know, the, the, like you said, this empire's populist empire is built on like making sure the population is like loves you and stays in line. And a, I think another big part of uh, like the complete renovation of Paris and like th basically these people were employed to destroy their own homes and build newer, uh, different homes uh, and wider boulevards that made it much, much harder to do a popular revolution. That is also a big part of why they're redesigning Paris this way. It's like, yes, we keep having governments get overthrown by the people. Right. Cause like, I want to make that harder. I want to make it easier to shoot a lot of people very quickly. Right. Right. They're like, they built it. I think I remember it's something like they built it to be just the size of a whole regiment of, uh, like cavalry or some shit. Like, uh, yeah, this is, this is him basically making it all those like cool barricades from the past, like not possible. And that sucks. Cause there's so much institutional history of them building them barricades, dude. Like what are people going to do with that knowledge? Yeah. Now you're never going to get the sequel to Le Miserable. Yeah. It sucks, dude. That that's the tragedy. There's not going to be another role for Russell Crowe to sing in. 
Yeah. Fucking yeah. what's Russell Crowe going to do with his career? Yeah. Did anyone think about Russell Crowe before Did they Napoleon expanded the boulevards? Once think about Russell Crowe. I don't think so. Not once. Not a not single once. time. It's fucking bullshit. And is that his greatest crime? Greater than conquering Indochina? Greater 100%. than killing all of those people in the rebuilding projects? You know, 100%. greater. Yeah. 100%. 100%. We're all in agreement. Yeah. It, anyway, <laughs> I love Russell, Russell Crowe. Crow. Do you he's love Russell Crowe? He's a great actor, man. Yeah. You know, he's just like. <laughs> How did we get on Russell Crowe talk? <laughs> I'm going to say it, Sophie. He's the only actor. That's not one true. I, he's the only actor. No one else is an what actor. About, he's what the about only Pedro? One. I know you love well, Pedro. Yeah, that's not acting. Not like Russell Crowe can. Oh, I'd love shit. to see Pedro Pascal badly sing all of the tunes in Les Miserables. Exactly. He couldn't <laughs> memorize all those numbers. Did you actually watch that? He, he probably, he, it, it was, it is, look, there's some good parts to that visually, but man, mm-hmm. Russell Crowe is not a singer. <laughs> That movie, I mean, like that movie was paid for. It was, <laughs> it was not fair. Was, he was, he's in that band, like something, however many feet of grunts. Yeah, and, I'm sure he's doing a lot of music. Uh, that's what I think. Of. I mean, it's not, I will say this, the, the Le Miserable adaptation with Russell Crowe is not nearly as bad as the adaptation of Sweeney Todd with fucking um, Johnny God, Depp, who, yeah. and it, it's heartbreaking because I love Sweeney Todd. It's a great musical. They, it's a great musical. Fucking Alan Rickman, incredible judge like his voice very wonderful the, the kid they get to play toby perfect voice beautiful voice and then you've got fucking sweeney todd played by uh, like johnny depp outside of all of the other things that are wrong with johnny depp yeah not a strong singer and for fucking sweeney todd you have to be a strong goddamn singer it's that's the lead that's yeah, the lead that in a broadway lead. sondheim musical mm-hmm Get a good singer. God Someone almighty. Someone like Russell Crowe. Get Russell Crowe. Make him be Sweeney Todd. Yes. <laughs> Make him, they should have done it, dude. That's the solution. Up. That's the solution. Uh, I'm glad we figured all this out. Matt Lieb, yeah. got any What's pluggables up? to plug before we roll oh, out for the day? So much p- to plug. Um, follow me on you know Instagram at Matt Lieb Jokes. But I do a podcast. I do a couple of podcasts uh, that are TV rewatch podcasts. And uh, Pod Yourself a Gun is the Sopranos podcast, and I'm going to be doing a live show of Pod Yourself a Gun uh, at San Francisco Sketch Fest Saturday, January 28th at 10 p.m. Piano Fight Main Stage. Please, uh, if you like the Sopranos um, or The Wire, because now we do a The Wire podcast, uh, check that out. Go, go to sfsketchfest.com, look up Pod Yourself a a gun and uh, buy tickets, uh, please, because that would be support sick. Matt. Support, support me, Matt. Dog. Check also, him out. Robert at and I have a couple events coming up, don't we, Robert? That seems like a lie. Okay, uh, one of them <laughs> is a live virtual event that we are doing with Moment House and featuring Margaret Kiljoy. It's a Behind the Bastards live stream show that will be happening on December 8th at 6 p.m. Pacific. And if you can't make it, we'll be on demand for up to a week. Um, And you can get tickets at momenthouse.co slash BTB. And it should be splattered all over socials. Is that how you say that? Splattered? I'm going with it. Yes. Splattered all over. Splooged all over uh, social media. And if I remember, I will link it in the description. Um, And Robert and I will also be at SF Sketch Fest. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. We will. Yeah. So 
you know, uh, what if we went on strike at Sketchfest? You know, Matt, what if we struck for more? I mean, what do I remember about Sketchfest? They gave us a bunch of those those waters that are like in yeah. big beer cans. The liquid death. Let's strike death. for more of those. Yeah, let's strike for more of that shit. More liquid death. And mm-hmm. I think also, um, I forget, I don't know if Audible is a spon- sponsor again this year, but if they are, I'm, I say we strike for more um, uh, free credit codes and gift cards. Yeah. Because yeah. I like audiobooks and I don't like having to pay. I don't I love audiobooks and I hate paying for things. So yeah. help us help Matt and I strike against uh, uh SF Sketch the, Fest. Good, the good people at SF Sketchfest <laughs> who have who have volunteered who have invited us <laughs> to <laughs> perform. Uh, but definitely um, buy tickets, but also but definitely buy tickets, but also support our strike against their they're evil, yeah. not giving me like right now. I would like one of those liquid death cans, and I don't have it, and I'm furious, man. Yeah, they make yeah. caffeinated. Anyways, ones now. Uh, I believe Behind the Bastards will be there on January 20th. I don't have any more information when we're recording this, but I'm sure you'll see more in the future. Also, buy Robert's book after the revolution. Yes. Did I do, do it? Did things. I do the plugs? Yeah. All right. So. Episode fucking over. Bye bye. God damn right. Bye. Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.